All right. Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again uh, today. It's good to jump back into the Word of God today. And today we have a special treat. We are going to study an entire book of the Bible in our gathering today. Now, before you get too excited, I will uh, inform you. It's just one chapter. So if you would please begin the process of turning in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. And now is a good time to begin looking for that book because as I said, it's probably only a page, maybe two pages uh, in your Bible, and chances are you'll flip right by it. Today we're going to study the book of Obadiah, the fourth book of the Minor Prophets. And so together we've looked now at Hosea, we've looked at Joel, we just finished our study of the book of Amos, and uh, today, as we said a few times now, we're going to be looking at the book Obadiah. And uh, as I always remind you, there's no shame in turning to the front of your books, your Bibles, uh, finding the table of contents, and looking up the page number to find it. What we want you to do is find it, not impress us with how quickly you can find it. Um, so whatever you need to do, make your way over there. While you're turning there, I'll tell you this. Obadiah is the fourth book of the Minor Prophets, and we call them the Minor Prophets. It's always good to remind ourselves of this, not because their message is any less significant than any of the other prophets, the major prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel, um, but simply because of the length of the books, um, typically smaller, as this one is. Again, just one chapter in length. And as the shortest books of the Minor Prophets, we might call this the Minorest of the Minor Prophets. All right, let's move on. Um, it, usually I say tough crowd. I'm just assuming where you're sitting right now, you rolled your eyes. Um, and that's okay, because that, that was a bad one. Maybe I should pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the fun time that we can have studying it, considering it. Thank you for the work you've done in our hearts uh, to give us an interest in these things. And Lord, we know that your word is alive. We know that it's good and helpful um, for us, that you use it to grow us, to challenge us. Uh, and we're praying that you will do that once more as we study these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, by now I imagine you found the book, or hopefully you did. Uh, you'll notice the very first line of the book, it says, The Vision of Obadiah. And so we know right from the very beginning who the author of this book is. It's a guy by the name of Obadiah. Now, that's about all we know of the author of this particular book. Obadiah was actually a quite common name. It's found 12 different times, maybe 13 times uh, in the Old Testament. So it was a pretty common name amongst the Jewish people. And there's no indicators in the book to let us know, was it one of those 12, one of those 13 people, or was it somebody else entirely altogether? Um, but we know the fellow's name. We don't know his background. We don't know where he came from. We don't know the type of job that he did when God called him. Uh, we don't even necessarily know what town or, uh, or kingdom he was from. Um, rather, we just simply know it's a fellow by the name of Obadiah. We have some clues in the book as to the time or the timing of the book. You recall when we were studying the book of Amos, we said it was written roughly around the year 760 or 755 B.C. Um, can narrow that down pretty good. We have a lot of information, internal and external, as to um, when that was written. We, we only have a few as to the timing of the book of Obadiah. Uh, what we, we read in the book, and we will read it as we get a little further on, is that it, it comes following an attack upon the city of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and the events that are spoken of in this book 
seem to be just after an attack on Jerusalem. Well, that helps us narrow it down a little bit. Unfortunately, uh, you might say, there, was, there has been multiple attacks against the city of Jerusalem, four at least, two of which are recorded in the scriptures for us. And so that narrows it down a little. There was an attack around the 840s. There was attack, we know, uh, by the Babylonians in 580. You know, so we're able, it was one of those, but we don't know exactly which one of those it was. Um, but again, I don't even think that is entirely significant uh, because the real thrust of the book is who the book is written to and what the prophecy to that group of people actually is. And so it doesn't matter who spoke it. It doesn't necessarily matter when they spoke it. It's really what they spoke. And so that's what we're going to be considering. So read along with me, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent out among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Now what's unusual about the book of Obadiah in our Bibles is that not a whole lot is addressed, or none of it really, is addressed to the nation of Israel and just sort of the ending verses are addressed to the city of Judah or the, the kingdom of Judah um, or the Jewish people as a whole. The, the majority of this book is addressed to a foreign nation, the people of uh, Edom here. That's kind of interesting. That's a little bit unusual in our Bibles that God's going to send this prophet out to this foreign nation the way that he does. And, and so as we see there in verse 1, it says, this is the vision of Obadiah concerning Edom. God is going to bring a message through Obadiah of a coming judgment upon this foreign nation because of their sin. Let me tell you a little bit about the Edomites. The Edomites lived in a or lived uh, uh, past tense in a very rocky and rugged desert area. It was sort of in the south. It was to the south and east of the land of Israel, of the Promised Land. Today, it's the nation of Jordan. Uh, it's down uh, to the east of the Dead Sea, if you're familiar with where the Dead Sea is, a very deserty area that is down there. Uh, the people of Edom, we know a lot about them from the Bible. The people of Edom were the descendants of Esau. And if you remember, in the book of Genesis, Esau was the older twin brother of Jacob. Again, you can read about this family. Um, you have Abraham and his children, then you have Isaac uh, and his children, which were Esau and Jacob. The word Esau, it literally translates as Harry, which is the name that is given to this little baby. Uh, he's called little baby Esau, little, little hairy fella uh, is what he's called. Genesis tells us that he was hairy all over like a cloak. He came out like a, he had a jacket on. Um, that, that's not funny. I don't know. I think it's funny. Um, secondly, uh, the that's Esau. Esau means hairy. The word Edom, it means red, because not only was he a little hairy fella, but he was a little red hairy fella. And so Esau, Edom uh, were the names that this little boy went by, this young man went by. And years later, when a nation would come from this one individual, the name of that nation was the nation of Edom. And as I said, the Bible says quite a bit about Esau. It says quite a bit about the people that came from Esau, who we call the Edomites. Rarely in the Bible is what it says of these individuals positive. 
And sadly, from day one, Esau and Jacob, even while they were still in the womb of their mother, Rebekah, from day one, these two little guys were at odds, one with the other. And so in Genesis 25, we read this. It says, now the children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, it's because there are two nations in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Again, Edom is the older brother, Jacob the younger. And so the relationship was at odds with one another from the very, very beginning, even in the womb of their mother. And that relationship continued pretty much that same way throughout their lifetimes, and then into the lifetimes of their descendants. For Jacob, the Jewish people, for Esau, the Edomites. And so in Numbers chapter 20, we read when Israel came out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, wandering through the desert, making their way to the promised land, they wanted to go north through the region of the Edomites to get to the other side, uh, sort of a direct route. And they inquired, can we pass through? We're not going to cause any trouble. We won't stay here and all that sort of stuff. And the Edomites refused to allow them to go through, said, if you do enter, we'll consider it an act of war and attack you. And so the Jewish people, the four million perhaps of them, mom, dad, little kids, all that kind of stuff, had to go 20, 30 miles out of their way to go around Edom uh, to get to the place that they wanted to go. We read in the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings, the frequent opposition uh, to the Jewish people during the reigns of King Saul and King David and King Solomon, frequent opposition by the Edomites, the, the fighting that took place. We read in the book of 2 Chronicles, how Edom allied themselves with the Moabites and the Ammonites, two other neighboring nations, and how they mounted an attack against the southern kingdom during the reign of King Jehoshaphat. We go all the way up to the New Testament. It probably won't surprise you to hear King Herod the Great of Edomia. Uh, Edomia was sort of a, an ancient name of the Edomites. And so King Herod the Great was an Edomite. And of course, he is the one who determined to put to death the hope of Israel, God's Messiah, by making a decree that all babies born in Bethlehem or living in Bethlehem two years and younger should be put to death. So my point is this. Edom's history is a repeated history of hostility and opposition toward the Jewish people. And it's that opposition that the Lord is going to address in this particular book. And that's why it begins, thus says the Lord concerning uh, Edom. The Lord's going to address the opposition that they've had all these years against uh, the Jewish people. I imagine Obadiah in two ways during this, uh, in, in this book. One is if he's sort of like a, a newscaster uh, who breaks into your programming, this just in, special report, and then sort of gives the, the news. The other way I imagine Obadiah as if he's like an, an attorney in a court of law. Uh, the prosecuting attorney who's going to come in, he's going to lay out the charge, he's going to lay out the, the reasons for that particular charge, and then ultimately the sentencing for that particular individual. And so we'll look at that. And he begins, as I said, like a newscaster. And he says this, We've ha we have a special report, verse 1. We have a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent out. It says, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Again, the her is Edom. The nations around Edom are going to rise up against her. 
You'll notice verse 2, as a result of that, as a result of the nations around her rising up against her, it says that Edom will be, uh, I will make you small among the nations and you shall be utterly despised. If you skim down for a moment to verse 18, in addition to being made small and being utterly despised, it goes on even further, and it says that there will not be even one single survivor of the house of Esau or of the house of Edom. And so a strong, stern judgment against this nation. Now you hear that and say, wow, that's, that's pretty severe. Not even one single survivor. And that caused me to ask the question, well, what did Edom do? You know, what is it that they have done to deserve such a judgment from the hand of the Lord? Well, Obadiah will go on to tell us. You'll look at verse 3. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Interesting. The fall of Edom was to be God's judgment on the nation because of its sort of overriding and offensive sin of pride. As we'll see, the kingdom of Edom was filled with pride. And as Obadiah points out, that pride deceived them. We see that in verse 3. Now, most people today, I imagine most of us watching this, don't consider pride to be sort of all that serious. Certainly not serious to wipe out an entire nation or, or, or something like that. That doesn't seem like the deserved punishment um, for pride. And yet, the scripture paints a very different picture of pride. So we may have sort of this idea, but the scripture paints a very different picture regarding pride. According to, to the Bible, pride it has the potential to be the most damning of the attitudes of the heart that we might have. And the reason why that is, is because pride creates in us this attitude of our hearts that declares that we don't need the Lord. Sometimes we don't need other people, but certainly that we don't need the Lord. And so we begin to tell ourselves, look, everything that I have is because I've worked hard, not because God has given me the physical or perhaps the mental ability to work hard. We begin to tell ourselves everything that we have accomplished is because of our great intellect and our great ability, not because the Lord saw fit to raise us up while perhaps not raising up another. And so we read in the book of Proverbs this, interesting. It says, six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. And then he goes on to list. So the Lord has a hate list, so to speak. These are the things that the Lord despises, that are an abomination to him. And you'll notice the very first thing in that list, verse 17 of Proverbs 6, is haughty eyes, or as the King James says, a proud look. Pride causes a person to distance themselves from God, to be independent from God and others, and it creates even, in our relationship with others, it creates an insensitivity or a hard-heartedness toward others. And so, again, you've heard people say this sort of thing. They say, look, I worked hard to get where I am. They should work hard too. But all along, it, it's revealing, forgetting what the Apostle Paul wrote, what do you have that you did not receive? And so if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, from a worldly standpoint, Edom had a whole lot of things that they could be proud in. Edom, which was located along a great trade route from uh, Egypt in the south and Syria in the north, they were a very successful and affluent kingdom in the region. 
and they prided themselves on that success and on that affluence. Additionally, Edom prided itself in its military strength and the security of its kingdom. They, they, they were a secure kingdom. They prided themselves in that. And part of the reason was is because they lived in the desert cliffs of the region. Notice it mentions that essentially in verse 3 when it talks about the clefts of the rock and their lofty dwelling. Edom's, Edom lives sort of amongst these red uh, sandstone cliffs, and those cliffs would rise straight up from the ground, essentially, about as much as 5,000 um, feet in height. We have a little picture here that we're going to show you, and you can see right into those cliffs or those clefts there were little dwelling places that they had. Um, that's a pretty secure place to live, isn't it? If somebody's got to kind of climb up 5,000 feet to get uh, to the top of this particular place so they can attack, it's going to be pretty difficult for them. Additionally, Edom, their capital city, maybe you've heard about it, particularly in light of sort of uh, last day's prophecy, maybe you heard of the city of Petra. Petra was located in Edom. And Petra was a city that was literally carved into the red sandstone, and it was accessible by only one narrow canyon uh, that was almost a, a mile long, all right? So this little narrow canyon, a mile long, brought you sort of into this bowl of a city. We have a picture here of, uh, of Petra. Our hope is someday when we go over to Israel uh, is to make our way to Petra. It's about a four-hour drive um, from the Dead Sea area where we go down and visit for the day. You know, so it's kind of out of the way to get to it, but it's a remarkable sight to consider. Um, and you can see in that picture just how, they, how beautiful and how ornate it was. This is inside of that bowl, if you will, that I was describing to you. Petra was pretty much impregnable. Uh, it's been said that 12 men could withstand an entire army coming against them because there was only one way in, and it was this narrow passageway where people had to come in single file over a half-mile, mile distance to get in. Uh, and Edom, they boasted in their strength. They boasted in their security. Nobody will ever be able to come and get us. Look at where we live, you know, these kinds of things. A third area that Edom was proud of, that they boasted in, was their wisdom. Uh, the wisdom of the men of Edom, or the men of the East, as they're referred to uh, in the Bible, uh, particularly from the city of Temen, T-E-A-M-N, one of Edom's great cities. And Temin was historically noted, both in the Bible and in extra-biblical text, it was historically noted for the wisdom that came out of those particular places. And Edom prided themselves in those things. Interesting to note, two of Job's three friends that come and sit with him to give him all kinds of wisdom were Edomites. And they came from the two of the cities in Edom. I find that interesting. There's one final area that was a cause for pride among the people of Edom, and that was what we might today call their diplomatic skill, their ability to make alliances with other nations. It seems that they were especially adept at doing so, forming these alliances between themselves and the various nations both near and far away from them. And they boasted in that, and they thought that also gave them a strength. No one's going to attack us. Look at all of our alliances that we have. So let's go back over this. The Edomites, they were financially successful, because, which is directly attributed to the trade route upon which their city or their, um, their nation was situated. 
They were militarily secure because of the natural geographic features upon which their cities and nations were situated. And then they were world-renowned, or at least regionally renowned, but they were world-renowned as men of wisdom. And 1 Kings, it compares them with King Solomon. What strikes me about that is this. None of those things were actually something that was under their control. And so they were wealthy because of the trade route that they were situated on. If they were somewhere else and there was no trade route of people going past them, that would impact them negatively. They were secure because of the high mountains upon which their cities and their kingdom existed. They were intelligent and wise, but what did they do to contribute to the fact that they had a strong, healthy, able mind that could process information and make decisions the way they did? They were born with those strong, healthy minds. And so none of those things were really the result of their own doing, and yet they prided themselves greatly in those things, and they concluded that nothing could ever happen to them because of those particular things. Again, look at verse 3 of Obadiah 1. It says, who will bring me down to the ground? As verse 3 says, that in the pride of their heart, uh, they were deceived. Obadiah continues in verse 4. He says, though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride is so deceptive. What pride does is it makes us think things about ourselves and things about other people that just aren't true. And the Edomites, they were not the last, uh, the first, or nor will they be the last that were people that were deceived by pride. They thought because of these many different things that they were boasting in that nothing would ever happen to them. And the reality is when the Lord was determined to bring a judgment against them, Nothing they might boast in was going to be able to keep them from being brought down by the Lord. Now, in verse 5, Obadiah is going to begin to describe sort of the magnitude of the judgment that is coming upon Edom. And so we read in verse 5, it says, If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal enough only for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings so that others could have that? But how Esau has been pillaged, her tre his treasures sought out. Obadiah's point in verses 5 and 6 are, are, again, to emphasize the magnitude of this destruction. And the way that he does that is he compares the way that thieves come in and plunder a person by night. And when they do so, they don't take every last thing from the house. They take what it is they came in for, the TV or the um, something else of value that is there in the home, um, something that catches their eyes. Oh, look at that nice necklace. They take that. But they don't stop and pick up the throw rugs and every last plank from your wood floor. They leave certain things behind. Obadiah gives a second example. He talks about the grape gatherers, how they go into the harvest. They don't gather every single grape that is in there, but they leave some of the grapes behind for others to glean. He goes on, Obadiah goes on to say, that's not how it's going to be with Esau and Edom. He says, its treasures will be sought out so that every last one of them will be removed as part of this kingdom's destruction. The Edomites, who were so proud of their great natural defenses, their seemingly impregnable cities, were going to be completely brought down 
and pillaged, Obadiah tells us. As you recall, there was a second area that the Edomites prided themselves in. That was their ability to make alliances with foreign nations. Notice what verse 7 says. It addresses that. It says in verse 7, All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. And so while it's true that the Edomites were known as skilled diplomats, and they probably were, what we see is that their allies were going to double-cross them. They were going to lay a trap for Edom that would ultimately lead to the nation's destruction. Now, of course, this isn't meant to imply that there was or is anything wrong with one nation trying to have good relations with another or forming alliances or whatever it may be. But it's foolish on the part of Edom to think that they could place their absolute trust in those relations, just as it would be foolish for us to think such things. And that's Obadiah's point, that Edom, in their pride, concluded that these alliances would perpetually keep them safe. And they were proud of their political alliances, but God was going to use those very alliances against them to break their pride and once more bring them down, as it says. Verses 8 and 9 speaks of the third area that Israel prided itself in, excuse me, Edom prided itself in, which was their wisdom, their wise ones, as they're called. Notice what 8 and 9 says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, declare the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, one of their cities, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by the slaughter. And so even though the, the wise ones of the east or the wise men of Edom, even though they were world-renowned for their wisdom, God says that even they will be brought down uh, and destroyed. He says that they will be cut off by the slaughter. And so one after the other after the other, the very things that Edom prides itself in, puts their trust in, are going to turn around and let them down. And by way of application, I can't help but think of the things in our lives that we pride ourselves in, whether it's individually, whether it's as a church, whether it's as a nation. And so as a nation, for instance, we might, as Edom did, we might place our strength, uh, our trust in our strength, maybe the strength of our economy or maybe the strength of our military. And these things make us secure, and so we'll never be brought down. We begin to pride ourselves in those things. As a church, we might pride ourselves in our commitment to study the Word of God, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're so much better than all those other churches. As an individual, I look at my own life and I pride myself in my good looks and my great intellect, for instance. I'm kidding, as you hopefully know, but we do things like that. We look at aspects of our lives and we pride ourselves in those things. Those are the things that make us great. Those are the things that make us superior to others. These are the things that will never allow me to fall. We have to be on our guard against this type of thinking because, again, pride causes us to think that we don't need the Lord and we don't need others. You may recall in the book of Isaiah we read that it was pride that caused the downfall of Satan. Isaiah 14 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. That was his name when he was an angel of God. How you are fallen, O Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, 
I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the most high God. Notice that I will ascend. I will exalt. I will sit. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. It was Lucifer's pride which brought him down, even as it was Edom's pride which led to that nation's destruction. And so here's our takeaway. You can know for sure that the Lord takes the issue of pride very seriously. And it's just a matter of time in our lives before he allows it to bring about our fall, and in some people's case, their destruction. And so before moving on from this, I just want to leave you with this well-known proverb. Proverbs 16, it says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so let the Lord speak to your life. If you have an area of, of life, that, of your life, where pride is an issue, let the Lord deal with that. You might look at it and say, oh, it's not as big as some of the other issues of sin that people deal with. It is significant. Pride goes before destruction. Verse 14 continues, and it, it, I'm sorry, verse 10 continues, and it brings us to the second division uh, in the book of Obadiah, where Obadiah reveals the reason for Edom's destruction. Uh, why is God, you know, uh, rendering such havoc on the nation here? Now, of course, we've already saw that pride is the reason here, but the reality is this, a person could be full of pride and you and I not necessarily have any idea that that's the case. It could be going on inside of them. My, my point is, pride is a matter of the heart. Pride is an internal thing that is going on inside of someone. However, if not dealt with, pride will eventually manifest itself in our actions. Sooner or later, it will manifest itself. And so your heart is filled with pride, and you be then begin to conclude that you alone know how to do this thing the right way and nobody else knows how to do it. And before long, you begin scolding other people or you become embittered toward other people because they just don't know the right way to do it like you do. Sooner or later, the attitude of your heart begins to manifest itself in your actions. And so again, if you have a pride problem, deal with it before it becomes a behavior problem that ruins your relationship with God and ruins your relationship with other people. And we deal with it by going to the Lord, acknowledging our sin, asking him to root it out of us, and then taking the steps to walk in humility or in repentance. Now, if you thought God's response to the pride of Edom was a bit too much, I want you to notice how the pride of Edom began to manifest itself in the actions of the people of Edom, particularly those actions that are rooted toward God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And so, though the root of Edom's great sin was their pride, pride, as I said, is an issue of the heart, which in and of itself will begin, can't be seen by others, but it will begin to manifest itself. And so, what can be seen, pride is the root, what can be seen is the fruit of that pride, the way in which Edom treated the nation of Israel. And starting in verse 10, we read this, because of violence done to your brother, Jacob, shame will cover you. Now remember, Jacob, uh, later the name would be changed to Israel. The Jewish people are descendants of Jacob. And he says, because of your violence done to your brother, Jacob, shame will cover you and you shall be cut off forever. 
He says in verse 11, the way in which they stood aloof on the day of Israel's destruction, when a third power came against Israel and looted Israel and cast lots for the plunder of Israel, what Edom did is they stood off aloof, it says there. That was their sin, one of their sins. He continues on by saying that not only did they not do anything to help their brother, remember Esau and Jacob ultimately are brothers, but they also then began to rejoice in the difficulty that Israel was experiencing. Verse 12 speaks to that. It says how they gloated over the day of their brother's misfortunes. It says how they rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their distress. And then it goes on at the end there, verse 12, to say how they boasted in themselves that such distress would never come upon them. Continuing on, soon we see that So first, they don't do anything. They look on, no steps to help. Second, they begin to gloat and rejoice and boast. And then thirdly, as we begin to see in verse 13, we see them out in the streets of Jerusalem looting the wealth of the Jewish people in the day of their calamity. It's as if they were watching on TV. They see everybody else stealing TVs, and so I'm rushing down. I'm going to go get mine as well. Notice something here. First, they turn a blind eye to the destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem. Then they begin to mock the Jews. Then they begin to boast in themselves that nothing like that could ever happen to them. Next, they're on the streets of Jerusalem, taking for themselves the possessions of the defeated Israelites. I say take notice of it because what we see is the progression of sin. Rarely do we begin with the so-called big sins. We move toward those things. We descend toward those things. And so as we see here, they look on, pay no mind really, they begin to mock, soon they're out stealing from the defeated people. Notice next, verse 14 points out, it says, do not stand at the crossroads or cut off his fugitives, do not hand over his soldiers in the day of distress. The next step in their decline is actually to situate themselves on the road of escape for the Jewish people and to block the exit of the Jewish people, to push them back toward those that were invading their city. Or, as it says, to actually help capture those that were fleeing and to send them back so that they can be sold into slavery. That's pretty wicked, don't you think? All this all comes from the place of pride. Finally, verse 16, it says, For as you have drunk of my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and they will swallow and they shall be as though they had never been. And so when all is said and done and the battle is sort of over and the dust of Jerusalem has settled, it seems as if the Edomites, they made their way into Jerusalem, that would be Mount Zion, and they begin to get drunk upon God's holy mountain. And I can't help but think, I imagine, that they're celebrating the demise of the Jewish people. Perhaps they're even celebrating the demise of the God of the Jewish people, much like King Belshazzar of, uh, of Babylon did in Daniel chapter 5, when he, when he praised the gods of gold and silver, uh, and the true God uh, intervened and, and spoke into his life. You can read about it, Daniel chapter 5. And so the picture that we have that Obadiah is painting for us, drawing for us, is one of an utterly cold and heartless treatment of God's people 
by the kingdom of Edom. And again, we don't know the exact instance of Edom's mistreatment of the southern kingdom. Again, some speculate around 840, some speculate around 580, some even speculate earlier on or closer to our time than that. But what is clear is we see on the heart or the response of Edom was one that was completely without mercy or compassion toward their brother Jacob. And the Lord takes notice of it. And so because Edom rejoiced when calamity came upon the house of Jacob, now God is going to come against them with an unsparing judgment that will bring about their total fall. I said earlier, Obadiah kind of, it's almost like a trial. Here's the charge against you. Here's the reasons to support that particular charge. And then, uh, finally, it concludes with sort of the sentencing. And verse 15 sort of begins the pronunciation or the pronouncement of that sentencing. It says, for the day of the Lord, that's God, the day of God's judgment. It says, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall, excuse me, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Two things are going to incur, occur as part of this day of the Lord's judgment. Number one, as we've been saying, Edom will be destroyed. The second one, as we're going to go on to see, is that the very people that Edom ignored and mocked and looted and eventually violently mistreated, of course, the nation of Israel, is going to rise up, and as it says in verse 17, they shall possess their own possessions. Edom will be destroyed. And we know when that event happened in history. It, it, it occurred by the Romans in, right around between the years 66 AD and 70 AD, the same years that uh, the Romans attacked the city of Jerusalem. And while Israel, as we saw last week, would be restored in the last days, the reality is Edom would be completely destroyed. I want to remind you what we looked at last week. This is from uh, Amos chapter 9. Speaking of Israel, speaking of the days of restoration, the last days when God would restore the nation of Israel and all of Israel will be saved, as it says in the book of Romans. We read this in Amos. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. That's God's promise toward Israel. God's promise toward Edom is that they would not have one survivor remaining. Edom would be completely destroyed, and the people who Edom turned their hatred and mistreatment toward Israel would rise up and be eternally restored. And we'll finish today by reading Obadiah's description of that final restoration. This begins in verse 19. It speaks of this final restoration of Israel when when Israel will occupy all of that land that once belonged to the kingdom of Edom and some of the other surrounding nations around Israel. So picking up in 19, we read this. It says, now those of the Negev, the Negev today we call the Negev. It's southern Israel. It's a very desert area there. It says, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. That's the area today we might call the Gaza Strip. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, northern Israel, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as, as, far as Zarephath 
and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Deliverers will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord. And so Obadiah's prophecy ends by saying that although Edom will be destroyed, Israel will go on. And the testimony of Scripture is clear on this. As we see it here in this book, God's hand is on the Jewish people in a special and a unique way. From the very beginning, when God called Abraham unto himself, he gave Abraham a promise. He declared to Abraham, this is the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in which he said, those that bless your descendants, Israel, I will bless, and those that curse your descendants, Israel, I will curse. And throughout history, nations that bless Israel have experienced blessings themselves, while nations that have come against her have ultimately experienced hardship and even destruction altogether, as Edom could attest for us. And so Obama, uh, excuse me, Obadiah says to Edom in verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. And he says, and that their deed, he says their deeds will return upon their own head. I don't know if the book of Obadiah was ever read in the city of Edom. If it was, I can't imagine it was a, a bestseller that everybody wanted to get their hands on because the, the message is so negative against the people of Edom. But I, I can suspect this. I suspect the message of the book of Obadiah was incredibly encouraging to the Jews who continually found themselves having to put up with the mistreatment that came to them at the hands of the people of Edom. And so time and again, the Edomites seem to have their day against God's people. But notice at the end of it all, verse 21, it says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's an encouraging message to the Jewish people. The Lord knows how, and he's able to. He knows how to, and he is able to preserve his people and to advance his kingdom for his purposes. And that's our message of the book of Obadiah. Now, we might look at that and say, very interesting. That's nice to hear uh, about what happened there. But I think there's some observations that, and applications that we can make to our lives. Number one is this. As we learn from Proverbs chapter 6, the Lord hates pride, and he will deal with it as it needs to be dealt with. And so if we have a pride problem, we need to bring that to the Lord and ask him to root it out of us. It's that serious. Second thing I think we can take from this book is this, that we need to be especially careful of those things that we allow ourselves to put our trust in. And so for the Edomites, it was their wisdom. It was their finances. It was their ability to make alliances with other nations and to keep themselves militarily secure. But as we saw in our book study today, in that day of shaking, None of those things were able to keep them from falling. And so what is it for you and I? What are those things that we place our trust in and truth be told cause us to be independent from God and from others and, and even arrogant toward others? Is it our education? Is it our advanced degrees? Is it our bank accounts? Is it our stock portfolios? Is it that we are Americans? Or is it that, well, I'm a Christian or something like that? I think a lesson that we can take from the book of Obadiah for ourselves is to guard against that sort of thinking, boasting in these things. 
And just as we would with pride, ask the Lord, Lord, root this out of me. This isn't of you, nor is it pleasing to you. Transform me more into the image of your son. And the third thing is, is quite simple. It's, it's a little bit humorous almost to say, but it, I think it's quite simple, and it's, it's this. It's be nice to Israel. The Lord sees and the Lord takes notice. God's promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago continues to stand to this day where he says, I will bless those that bless thee, and I will curse those that curse thee. Three practical takeaways, I think, that we can take from this book of Obadiah. I'm hopeful that that is helpful for you. And so with that, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that a book written maybe 2,800 years ago could still have application in our lives as well. And, and Lord, that's exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to speak to our hearts. We, want to, we certainly want to learn. We want the background. We want these things so that we can understand in a greater way. But Lord, when we come to your word, we don't want it to just be some academic exercise. We want to have heard your spirit minister to sort of the deep places of our hearts as you continue to refine us, transform us, burn away those things that need to get out of our lives so that those things that are of you would rise to the top, so to speak. And so use your word in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close uh, our time together with a song, uh, and we do hope it's a blessing to you. And we just want to always, as we do, we want to encourage you at home, if you would like prayer, if you would like to talk, if you'd like to have a conversation with one of us as pastors or leaders here at the church, we'd love to be able to connect with you in that way. Uh, and there's a variety of ways we can do it. We say it every week. You can drop a note in the comment section, and we'll see that, and we'll use that as the opportunity to get connected with you. You can just leave what it is you'd like for prayer right there in the comment section if you're comfortable with doing that. And you can always reach out to us by phone or email and call us or contact us here uh, in the offices, and we'll stay connected with you in that particular way. We love you. We're grateful for you. May the Lord bless you richly today. Let's worship the Lord one final time together.